This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, friends. I am as usual, in my kitchen, gearing up for another guest to come into my home and talk about what they love eating. I am just fueling up on, you know, that cheese that Desiree Birch brought to my house. You know, the plasticky American singlet. It's wrapped in plastic. I'm going to put some of that on some bread and grill it. I think I might have. What do you have with that? It's got to be ketchup. Got to be ketchup. Now, many people will know Bernadine Everystoke from her 2019 booker-winning novel, Girl, Woman, Other. She became a household name seemingly overnight, but she's been writing since her early 20s and has so far published 10 books. I know a bit about her wild years living across London. She is one of those people who seems like a true bohemian. And she's someone I've always wanted to sit down with since I first read her work. I cannot believe Bernadine Everisto is about to knock on my door. I don't think it's real cheese. Bernadine Everisto. Welcome to Comfort Eating. Oh, hello. It's great to be here. <laughs> when you came into my house, you said uh, you wanted to use the bathroom. And when you walked up the stairs, I had this mad panic because you were going to see the two rooms in my house where I'm currently just throwing boxes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's fine. It's, um, I'm, <laughs> I didn't judge you. <laughs> I'm hoping at some point within my adult life, uh, to get those rooms sorted out. But you can't rush these things, can you? No, no. Well, we've got builders in at the moment and they're not rushing it, that's for sure. <laughs> this 
is where I get to find out what people really eat behind closed <laughs> doors, that what they're actually eating rather than what they're saying they eat in interviews. What I'm dying to know is what you have brought for me. Have you got, again, I can't smell anything being cooked. It's a delectable treat. So. Oh, okay. Right, go on. Right, <laughs> this is, go on. Ta-da! Right. So Explain, please, what you have for cheese me. Cheese and onion crisps, <laughs> which I've been eating probably since I was about 12, as a special treat that I try not to have every day. And sliced tomato, very healthy, vitamins. <laughs> And healthy brown sliced bread with some lovely natural butter, real butter on. And basically you're going to make a crisp and tomato sandwich. It sounds delicious. <laughs> Actually, it is delicious. Give me them over. I'm going to have to, you're going to have to show me how to, um, how to. Oh, it's, uh, it's very simple. How to, do you have a special way to erect a sandwich? I like that you've brought brown bread. Is brown bread a nod towards health? While you're still having the... Um, yes, I think so. I'm going to take these here. I think the brown bread cancels out the crisps, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Do the tomatoes go first? I think so. I think that's best. You've got quite large chunks of tomato. Is this how you would have the tomato? Yeah, quite large. I think you need, you need the moistness to counteract the dryness of the crisps. Okay, so I'm opening. I'm opening. Oh, I love cheese and onion crisps. Oh, yeah. Me too. How much of a packet would you put in? I would I would just have a sort of a layer of crisps, just not too layer. many. Not too many. Because otherwise you're going to be coughing and spluttering and you won't be able to talk, actually. <laughs> would you cut it? Or would uh, you I just... would. I would slice it in half. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know. Do you think... I'm quite sophisticated with these you things. Are... <laughs> not big. <laughs> <laughs> I'm squashing it down. Yeah, squash it down. Should I just, should I just go in there? I would do, yeah. Oh, there's going to be it's it's lovely, isn't that? It's so satisfying. Just to we going, going take in a bite as well. Yeah, You're going in. It's just happiness, isn't it? Hmm. Thank mm. you for bringing an edible snack. <laughs> That's just joy. Hmm. Tell me when you came up with this recipe. Mm. Mm. Probably in my early twenties. Oh. Mm. Before I got into healthy eating. I love that <laughs> the interview's just gone down. <laughs> just been abandoned now. <laughs> it's the butter with the crisps that gives it that. Mm. I would never have thought to put a tomato in there. Yeah, and isn't it great to have a crunchy sandwich in that way? You don't get many crunchy sandwiches, do you? I would eat that in my pyjamas. In fact, I might make another. I might get you to make me one, another <laughs> one for tonight. You have said in the past that celebrity gossip is your guilty pleasure. Mm. I think a lot of people would be surprised at that. <laughs> it's also my guilty pleasure. But what what flavor of celeb gossip are we talking? Could you tell Chloe Kardashian from Courtney? Oh, of course. <laughs> Yay! I, I can name the whole family. Could you? Oh, yeah. Who's your favourite Kardashian? I won't go that far. <laughs> I don't know if I've got any favourites. You know what it is? Um, my justification for being interested in celebrity gossip mm -hmm. is 
even though a lot of it is untrue, we know that, right? But, and we know, I mean, if you've been the victim of it, you know they make things up. But, yes, but uh, it's about, it's about human behaviour. It's about stories. Yes. It's about what goes on behind the scenes. And as a writer of novels and fiction, that really interests me. It's human psychology. That, in fact, is what I'm studying mm. when I appear to be um, consuming a whole load of horrible gossip. But, you know, when, when I think back to when I was a child, there was very little gossip out there because yeah. the magazines didn't exist, the yeah. internet didn't exist, and now it's just everywhere. And it's fascinating. Have you got a place you go? Have you got, like, I, would, you, I can't you, reveal it. I know where it <laughs> it's is. It's too shameful. I know where it is. I know where it is. <laughs> You, it's the, it's the, because uh, I can see the guilt in your face. It's the Daily Mail sidebar of shame. That's totally untrue. How could you, how could you possibly, me, serious writer, I would never, I would never go anywhere near it. It's incredible, isn't it? You've written that you grew up in a drafty, creaking, ramshackle, detached Victorian house. You were the fourth of eight children. Uh, this was in South East London. So, a family of 10 must have been quite the operation when it came to feeding you all. I mean, how do you do that? What was it? What did it look like? I know, my mum. My mum was amazing because she was responsible for feeding her eight children. And she had eight and 10 years. So, you know, wow. we were very, well, some of us were very close in age. She was uh, very organised. She still mm. is. You know, she's still around my mum. She's 88. Yeah, very, very organised. And we didn't have much money because um, there was only one salary coming in, which was my dad, who was a welder who worked in a factory. Mm. And and so she just organised it so that we got all the nutrition that yeah. she felt we needed. And so we would literally get a certain number of lettuce leaves or slices of cucumber. Yeah. Um, and we would have different foods on different days and it was all freshly cooked never had takeaways of course ready-made meals weren't around anyway really 60s and 70s so much so everything was freshly prepared your mum must have been always pregnant so it seems <laughs> I yeah know. I mean like always yeah. and always pregnant but always cooking absolutely well. and, wow. and looking after the children I mean my father definitely mucked in when Did we were all younger yeah so that was good but he was out at work at the same time and we didn't have any nannies um, we didn't have any neighbours helping out my grandmother we went to see her when we were older, but she didn't really, she wasn't really around yeah. in the house. Yeah. So it was just my mum. What were you eating when you were all sitting together? Like, so she, you said lettuce and tomatoes, but what is, what's going with that? I can't remember the exact order, but there was an order of meals for the days of the week. So we were a Catholic family, so it was definitely fish and chips on a Friday. Mm -hmm. And my mother would make her own chips which were the, you know, you'd have those big potatoes and yeah. then there would be the serrated chip maker. People won't, won't even remember them today. Yeah. So they would be the whole potato serrated and, and fried, deep fat fried. Delicious. I mean, the frying pan would be there all the time, actually. Yeah. And you just top it up. I've no idea what people do today. That pan that sat on the stove and it was just half yeah. oil and then all the outside of the pan was kind of oil encrusted yeah, absolutely. and it just continually was bringing out amazing chips yeah 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 wonderful times yeah so and then we and then we'd also um I don't know not every Friday but we go to the fish and chip shop and that was always a treat yeah and the and we'd all have one fish and chips 
which was great. Um, and the chips were wrapped in, you know, the meal was wrapped in newspaper, as was back back in the old days. Did you carry home everybody's chips? I would have done, yeah. Because that is you, a lot of chips. It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you probably had a wheelbarrow. <laughs> Fish and chip wheelbarrow. And, um, and then we would have liver uh, one day a week. Oh, Lord. Didn't like it. No. No. And that would have been with, say, maybe boiled potatoes and vegetables. We had loads of vegetables. Always had yes. loads of vegetables. But back then, of course, it would have been, the vegetables would have been limited. So mm. it wouldn't have been broccoli and mange too. Mm. You know, it would have been carrots, peas, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, although that was really for Christmas. Mm. No aubergines, no courgettes, because no. people just didn't, they weren't around. You couldn't buy them, I don't think, in this no. country. And then my dad would make his own stew every other Sunday, which we loved. And that Ooh. was, we called it Daddy's Stew. And it was a Nigerian, Yoruba, I guess. I love that. absolutely love that dish. And then he started to put okra in. Okay. And this was okra that wasn't um, being baked or whatever whole, you know, so it was that slimy It's a tricky veg, okra. We we were just, we just, we refused to eat it. So we had to stop. Actually, when I went to Nigeria for the first time, we had a stew, somebody in somebody's house. So you had to eat it. It was a stew and it was an okra stew. Yeah. And it was, you put your spoon in and it was just this gooey, stringy. Yeah. Well, it was like snot. In your memoir, you describe your parents as yin and yang. What does that mean? He was a gregarious character outside of the house. He was very loud um, inside the house, very dominant, very authoritarian, disciplinarian. And, um, yeah, didn't really develop a relationship with his eight kids. Whereas my mother was shy and soft, quiet, loving, nurturing, maternal, obviously, (laughs) And, um, you know, very, very approachable and had a a lovely relationship with her children. When you say loud outside the house, did people know him? Was he known in the area? everybody knew my dad, yeah. Was he funny? I think he was probably outside Mm. the house. I wouldn't know, actually. Yeah. I I think he probably was, you know, um, you know, had a lot of Gerard de Vivre and made friends and chatted to people and so on. You know, very... um, just very sociable and he used to go down to the uh, working men's club and he used to hang out down there and he, he knew loads of people it was only when I went to Nigeria the first time and I and the second time I saw him in operation that I realized the way he was in the UK is a cultural thing yes. that people are responding to each other it's a hot country a lot of people are outside a lot of the time yeah. and people are engaging with each other in a way that we don't in this country we shut ourselves off well especially yeah. In London and, yeah. and the South, parts of the South. Do you know what I mean? We don't really communicate. Whereas over there, people, there is so much easy communication going on. So is it, it was almost like he was two different people and there was the person who was in the house yeah. who was quite kind of disciplined and then yeah. there was him outside where everyone, he was kind of the life and soul. Yeah, where, yeah, he was. Was he disciplined with you in the house? Was he... Oh, yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. You were just, you just kind of crept around him in case you got into trouble. Because um, I, I think in a way it was his way of controlling, you know, so many kids. Yeah. So I understand it now. But growing up, it was difficult because we were just afraid of him. And yeah. actually, again, that was a cultural thing. You know, sort of in the 60s and 70s, children were being raised in a different way mm. to how they would have been raised, say, at the turn of the century. Whereas my dad was raising his kids in a way that they were probably raised in this country at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. So so he was very, um, you know, he just didn't 
he didn't know how to how to be with us, how to talk to us, how to how to play with us, how to we never went anywhere with him. Yeah. How did growing up with those type of restrictions on your freedom did that affect what you wanted to do with your future? Well, I've been a big freedom lover all my life, and I think that's probably part of it. And um, it's interesting because the, my siblings who have children, they're very liberal with their kids. Right. They, they've parented them in a very different way. Mm. Um, so, so as soon as I left home, which was when I left school, when I was 18, I, I just took off and, and made a life that I wanted for myself. And I've been somebody who's sought independence and freedom and had it all my life, actually. You started youth theatre when you were 13, which you said that your dad only allowed because he thought you would be surrounded by good influences. <laughs> How well behaved were you? I was a good little girl. I were was. You? But, you know, we went down the pub. Um, <laughs> and you could do from the yeah. age of 12, 13. Yeah. And we were tall anyway. But there was no such thing as, you know, having to prove your age, mm. show ID. You had no ID. So, yeah, so after the, um, the evening ended, which would have been quite early, probably about seven or something, me and my friend Jenny, we go down the pub and some of the other kids, with the with the people who are running the youth theatre, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> and we like you imagine that today? Yeah. taking all the 13-year-olds for a lovely drink. That's right. And we'd like share fag between us and have What were like, you smoking? Benson Hedges. Yeah. Benson and Hedges, yeah. And, um, and also have like half a shandy or something yeah. that we share between us. Was that like a whole new start? of a chapter in your life though. Yeah, so that was my introduction to the arts and artistic people who are still my people. <laughs> um, from, yeah, from the age of 12 going to the youth theatre. It was the making of me, it really was, I loved it. What were you putting on? What play do you remember doing? Uh, we did a play about um, uh, King Arthur and his round table, which we took to Norway, which was the most exciting thing that happened to me yeah. when I was 16. And it's just spectacular. For two, we were there for two weeks. It was wow. a glorious summer. It's absolutely gorgeous. Actually, no, it wasn't 76. It was 75. Not you went to Norway. To Norway at the age of, so I would have been, say, just 16 in 1975, overland um, and the sea through Denmark wow. to Norway with the youth theatre. Teenage trips abroad are generally wild and the only real cultural things you get out of them are a love bite or something <laughs> like that or maybe that's just my school no you're trips. right you're right um was was that what the trip to Norway was like it was it was many things but definitely making out in the woods with Torsten <laughs> Torsten <laughs> the, the Norwegians to British people at that time were so beautiful yes you know they're so they were just so blonde I guess Blonde and, and, and gorgeous, and healthy looking, and, and healthy, outdoorsy. And yeah, yeah, and they seem very wealthy. Um, two cars in the driveway, and so on. After school, you started at Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama, studying community theatre arts, and you went on to form a theatre company with two friends from your course. I know that you spent many years moving between short-term accommodation all across London. 
What did you do with the freedom that you had then? Slept around, went clubbing, as you do. Um, I was running the theatre company. Um, I was just, uh, yeah, just doing whatever I wanted to do. It was lovely, actually. And having, actually, you know, also having a, a very nice, serious relationship, which was great. Spent mm. some time in Holland with a female yeah. lover. Yeah. And that was lovely. And also just, you know, Amsterdam yeah. Yeah. was um, a lovely, amazing city to me. Yeah. Just so stylish. And food was great. You know, it was just, um, yeah. you know, creamy potato dishes and lovely fish dishes. And I remember she used to make boulebets, which I'd never had before. And it was just the most delicious dish. And you'd dunk, you know, chunks of lovely Dutch bread in it. Yeah. And coffee, really nice coffee. Yeah. Because I think until I went to Holland, I hadn't really had really nice coffee. You're talking now about probably 82. Were you putting on work at that point? Were you writing or putting on plays? Or? Yeah, I was touring with the theatre company. Okay. And uh, so Patricia and Paulette and I were running the theatre company. And we were all, we just left drama school, so we were completely new at it. We were learning um, the ropes as we went along and eating very badly. What did you eat? Did you cook? Um, well, when I was at drum school, I just cooked like bean vegetable dishes that could last the whole week. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I feel like I need to ask, what's in the recipe for a bean vegetable dish that don't really lasts re- a week? <laughs> Is there a, right, does it start with an onion? Definitely onion. I don't remember frying the onion first, oh. though. <laughs> I think you, okay, so it's a raw onion. It, not raw, cooked. It's raw. Everything's okay. thrown in. Okay. The vegetables are thrown in. The beans are thrown in. Is it a tin of chickpeas? Probably a chickpeas. Kidney beans, more likely. Probably. Is it a, a tin of kidney beans, or were you not soaking them properly? Because that can be dangerous. Actually, you know what? <laughs> I think I used to soak because I couldn't have afforded a tin. the tin. So I, that in those days, I would soak. Yeah, definitely. And then loads of a, sort of an all herb kind of um, yeah mixed herbs yeah you just throw in this kind of powdery green yeah. thing that can't remember if I was into garlic at this stage and it yeah I remember really liking it it was quite a thin soup because I think I probably used um those nor uh stock like vegetable stock when is the point with the week-long bean concoction that you think I can't I can't do this anymore does it is it when it grows a beard or <laughs> yeah <laughs> It starts bubbling. You go into the kitchen, it's just that noise, and it's this thing bubbling away. Um, it would last me, it probably lasts me three or four days, you know. So you were a young woman and you're finding your creative voice. What do you think is driving you? I was definitely passionate about, you know, writing black women's stories and mm. putting us onto the landscape through theatre. But also I was just passionate about being in the arts and being a theatre maker and expressing myself and not being, not working in an office. Because if you'd have said to me, um, Bendine, you're going to have to work in an office for the next 10 years, I would have killed myself. Mm. You know, that was my, that was the thing I did not want to do. That was my greatest um, fear. It was to, to, to be confined to work in a conventional job. What is it about conventionality? that scared you back then? I thought it was oppressive and boring, but also I didn't fit into conventional society as a woman of colour. 
growing up. And so I didn't want to be part of it. So it was like I, even if I'd have wanted to lead a very conventional life, I would have still struggled to fit in because of how I look, right? And so I chose to reject it altogether. Right. And I think that's what was happening. Like, you don't accept me for who I am because of the color of my skin. You are going to treat me differently. So I'm going to be different. I don't need you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. As we know, you then begin writing books. What was life like when your debut novel, Lara, was published? I was uh, living on my own. Mm. I didn't have much money because I was I had a part-time job mm. and uh, that enabled me to write the rest of the week. So I was working two days a week. Two days a week were you having to do the office job that you were so yes. terrified of? Yes. What was that like? It was all right because it was an arty job and there were just two of us. So, so Did you we... have an office outfit that you would put on to try and be more? No. <laughs> well, no, but then, but then I did, at one point I did dress a little bit conservatively. And I remember a friend of mine I'd known from the 80s saying to me, oh my God, why are you wearing those clothes? You know, because I was, I was wearing skirts and tights. I mean, I thought I was looking funky, right? But she was thinking, oh my God, you look like, I don't know what she was thinking, but she, she was yeah. shocked that I wasn't dressing as rebelliously as I had dressed. I think a 60 denier tight is difficult to carry off sometimes. <laughs> I had like tartan tights. See, I mean, that's, that, that isn't being conservative though, is it? That's just... No, not really. But my, I think my coat was quite conservative. It's the kind of coat you might get in John Lewis or somewhere. Sorry, I'm just laughing about you thinking, <laughs> what do people wear to the office? Tartan tights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I look like an adult now. <laughs> During your time as a, a very mature and adult office worker, what food were you turning to for comfort then? There was a coffee shop in Greenwich, which was a bit of a walk from where I lived. Mm. And my treat was to go there and have a nice coffee and have some sort of like French bread and hummus. And that yeah. was my treat. And then also take some back home. So I was introducing, I was introduced to sort of delicatessen type foods at that point, like olives. Yeah. I've never really eaten olives or um, probably things like, you know, what you get now in supermarkets, artichokes yeah. and... Um, Britain, really, Britain really took to hummus, didn't it? Like really, I still eat hummus all the time. You followed Lara 
with the publishing of The Emperor's Babe and Soul Tourists. It seemed like something shifted around this time. In your memoir, you write, Here I was in middle age, and the idea of a house, pension and mortgage seemed quite attractive, (laughs) as did a long-term partner. I found that really interesting because that's kind of the age I am now. And I felt, you know, I felt in my late 40s, you suddenly feel, maybe I will give being an adult a go, you know. Um, Can you describe the change in how you Mm. felt around that point? Yeah, because I think I had been, you know, my, my, my parents were together 33 years. Yeah. And my father, as I said, was very dominant. Yeah. And then they split up. And I think I, through, through, through their relationship, and because my mother was so busy with all the children, mm. I think I saw marriage as something that was imprisoning. Mm. And I think by the time I got to my 40s, I was starting to sort of think independently, as opposed to just reacting against what I experienced as a child mm. in terms of what my concept of marriage Um, And also of conventionality. So I'd reached a point where I was fed up of having Mm -hmm. to move all the time because I'd moved so many times. Uh, I wanted to be in my own home so that I couldn't be turfed out of it. Yes. And and that to me just made sense. But it wasn't really conceivable because I wasn't earning enough money. And then I... um, I wanted a long-term partner mm. because I had relationships with women in my 20s, mm. men before, men afterwards, but I hadn't mm. found anybody to to nest with and mm. I was really longing to nest with somebody. Mm. But then also trying to convince myself that I didn't really need it and that I was strong and independent. Yes. Because I didn't want to be too needy and I thought if I'm too needy, I'm never going to meet anybody. So I need to just live on my own and be independent well I had no choice live on my own be independent and eventually somebody will come into my life who I can be in a long-term relationship with and and also it was just that so many of the people around me were settling down Mm. they were so you'd go to like people's houses for whatever function and you know they would be part of a couple and yeah. they'd have their lovely little kids and they drive their big four-wheel drives and <laughs> and they'd all chosen careers yeah. that would give them that and they had their own houses and and I did feel that I I was behind on with all of it you did in the end meet your husband in 2006 he says 2005 because we were corresponding in 2005 but we actually met in person in 2006. You now live together in what seems like a conventional relationship. (laughs) (laughs) How does that feel? Perfect. (laughs) But yeah, no, it is, it is conventional. I guess, I guess a heterosexual relationship, Mm. um, monogamous heterosexual relationship. Yeah. It's, it's conventional and it's, yeah, it's wonderful. I love it. What would young you in the theatre group when you were 17 thought of you now? I would have... Oh, that's a really interesting question. Because in terms of my career and what I've produced, I might think, oh, I want to be like her. But in terms of living in suburbia, which I do live in, and being married... And um, and so on. I probably would have just not been at all interested. I would have thought, oh, yeah, that's boring. 
You're now a hugely successful best-selling author. You've said in your writing that you use food to convey character, culture and community. So what food would you use to convey your character? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You're not allowed to say the bean stew. No, no. <laughs> coffee would feature. Yeah. Heavily, really nice coffee. And alcohol would feature quite strongly. So it would be a delicious coffee. And then what, what's your drink of choice? Uh, when, I, when I think I'm being good, uh, it would be vodka. Neat. Ooh. Because it's got hardly any calories yeah. and doesn't bloat you. Yes. Um, but when I'm not being good, like when the builders are in like now, it's wine and a white or red wine. And I don't even have any kind of, um, you know, I'm not even a connoisseur. Yeah. I should just... be. Having drunk wine ever since I was <laughs> 19. You'd think you'd be an expert I by should now. be an expert, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> in 2019 your book girl woman other won the booker prize what does a person eat to celebrate winning the most coveted award in literature <laughs> a packet of crisps cheese and onion crisps and a mars bar <laughs> um i don't really do fine dining I'd like to get into it. Yeah. So you like there was, I was in Nando's yesterday. Life must have changed so much since you won that prize. I mean, you are really famous. Now. <laughs> I mean, you are. I'm I just get, telling I get you. People spotting me in the street, but which is fine. But I don't like it when they come up and touch me. Did you ever want to be famous? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's quite magical. Yeah. <laughs> I did. You know, I, I like to justify it because somehow in this country we're not supposed to want that, are we? By saying I wanted my work to reach a wide audience. Yeah. You know, which yeah. it has done now. So it's 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 really wonderful. My life has changed. Okay, I mean, my relationship is still the same, right? You yeah. know, my friendships are still the same. And a lot of my life is still the same, but my career is not the same. And I haven't really stopped for two years. I've just done so much press, publicity. I've also written another book. I mean, I just haven't stopped. I've never been, been so busy before. <laughs> what was it about that book that captured the imagination of everybody? What, I mean, you'd been writing for years. Do you think that that was a better book than everything you'd written before? Interesting question. I don't know, really. I think... You know, my books have all been ambitious in different ways. But mm. I think this book only captured people's attention when it was up for the Booker Prize. Mm. So it could have gone the way of my other books in that they, you know, they tend to get good reviews, generally speaking, but then they don't sell very well. Mm. And because this then became part of the Booker Roadshow, it started to sell and it started to build momentum and then it won and it just exploded. And I think it also is, it is also about the zeitgeist as well. Yeah. You know, I don't think this book, A, I wouldn't have written it 10 years ago. You know, I wrote it when I wrote it. And times have changed to accommodate a book like this. And when we look about, look at the history of the Booker Prize, we see that, um, you know, books like mine have never won before, mm. right? 
there have been certain demographics who've just been ignored by this prize. Mm. So everything, everything was in my favour, I feel. So as we've established, you're into celebrity gossip, as am I. And you are now a celebrity. Um, so this is my chance to get a scoop on you. I should ask it in the style of celebrity gossip. When will you be showcasing your curves? <laughs> in uh, On a red carpet soon. What are you up to at the moment, life-wise? Um, yeah, life-wise, I'm just promoting Manifesto. Mm. So I've been doing that a lot. And then I'll be touring in the States in um, January, February. Wow. And, um, and then working on a novel, which I uh, can't talk about, but yeah. So... We're going to see you in the Daily Mail sidebar of shame any day now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're going to bother with someone like me somehow. Thank God. <laughs> Bernadine Everestel, thank you so much for comfort eating with me. Thank you. This is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> this episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Claremont. The series producer is Leia Green. And the executive producer is Cathy Drysdale. The music was written by Axel Cacoutier. Mixing and sound design was by Sammy L. Anani. If you like comfort eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.